schedule nine to five. What a way to get the work done. Yeah, we promise you don't have to sing. And how could you possibly sing as well as we just did? Who knows? But you don't have to sing, but you can sure get some things done with Agile. That's right, because nonprofits are always being asked to do more with less, or at least to do the same with fewer resources. That's true. And the team at Agile in Nonprofits, which is a service of D.H. Leonard Consulting, helps nonprofit professionals learn how to embrace an Agile mindset and how to implement the Scrum framework in their team settings. And that helps create twice the impact in half the time. You can learn more about all this and download their free Getting Started with Scrum checklist at agileinnonprofits.com. Well, hello there. I'm Kimberly Hayes de Muga. And I'm Amanda Day. And you are listening to the Fundraising Hey Day podcast. That's right. We're here to help you make sense of the complex world of grant writing and fundraising, including how to raise money and win grants, right? But also we want to tackle the issues behind sort of the why things are the way they are and how can we affect better change in the world of philanthropy. Yep, and new episodes drop every other week on Thursdays, and they tend to include cheesy sound effects and songs, because that's how we roll. You have been warned. This podcast is brought to you by our Season 6 sponsor, D.H. Leonard Consulting and Grant Writing Services. Their team can help make grants less stressful by assisting you with grant readiness and training, grant research, grant writing, mock review, as well as providing numerous DIY resources, guides, and templates. Don't let grants stress you out. Did you know that with every fundraising heyday episode, we create a coordinating blog post on their website, dhleonardconsulting.com. Check it out today. So I am so excited to introduce y'all to our guest today. Kimberly and I have both had the pleasure of hearing her speak at a previous Grant Professionals Association conference. And she also worked with the GPA board last year to help frame our conversations around DEI, inclusion, and just so many other things. So we, we are talking today with Kia Jarman, a fellow wearer of many hats or a sister wearer of many hats, whatever the appropriate or designation may be. Kia leads a boutique communications and community engagement consultancy called MEPR Agency. She's also the founder and visionary for the Nonprofit Equity Collaboration, and she serves as a philanthropy advisor of Give Black, Give Back, the first effort from the Black Philanthropy Initiative in Middle Tennessee. Through the lens of inclusion, Jarman partners with high-capacity leaders and nonprofits, governments, and the C-suites on mission-driven, high-impact initiatives to drive organization, community, or system changes. Specifically, Kia has led and partnered on city and statewide efforts to address industries that are historically underdeveloped in minoritized communities like affordable housing, water conservation, transportation, health access, mental health, youth violence, child abuse prevention, elder law, historic preservation, and green space, to list a few. So basically, she's just laying around eating bonbons, y'all, in case you <laughs> So known as Kiss with a Fist, Jarman is a highly sought-after facilitator, panelist, 
trainer and keynote speaker. She brings an infectious, candidly caring energy to sessions on community engagement, inclusive communication, diversity, equity, and inclusion, because they're not all the same thing, implicit bias, anti-racism, philanthropy, and being a woman founder. As if that wasn't all enough, welcome to the show, Kia. Thank you so much, Kimberly and Amanda. I'm so excited to be here with the two of you. We love having you. We already discussed we love your kiss with a fist uh, descriptor. That's Thumbs fab. up for that. Yes, that name was gifted to me. And so I took it as an honor. So I'm grateful for it. Those are the best when you, yes, instead of like, this is my brand. You had someone go, hey, this is you. And it's stuck. Absolutely. It's- Absolutely. I've also been called the medicine in the milk. So, you know, I'll go with either one. Kiss with the fist or medicine in the milk. Better than the pill and the peanut butter, right? You know how you give dogs the... Yeah, that would be enough. Yep. But same same effect, right? The the job is to kind of sneak up on you a little bit and then disrupt the way that you experience me. So, yeah. Loving it. Loving it. it. So, um, well, Kia, it's a very rare person who knows that they want to be involved in nonprofit work like at the age of 12, that's not something most kids will tell you is their dream life and dream job. Um, So how did you first find yourself working in the nonprofit sector and kind of what was your trajectory to get to where you're doing now? Yeah, I would say first and foremost, I'm a born entrepreneur. So through and through, I am a disruptor from second grade, having a jewelry making business um, on to today. Um, And and that jewelry making business, the reason why disruption happened was because I was at a local um, boys and girls club and they called my parents and said, she's taking the kids lunch money. You have to tell her to stop. So it was in that moment that I learned you know, this might be lucrative. I might need to keep doing it. You just can't get caught, right? And so I kind of learned disruption very early. Um, I'm a a lifetime member of Girl Scouts and I carry Girl Scouts into every room that I'm in. And as a lifetime member of Girl Scouts, what that means is that you learn to lead very early, um, very early, very often. And you learn to serve your community very early. And so when we think about um, being in that kind of middle age section that you were talking about, kind of adolescent time, it wasn't maybe necessarily I knew it would be nonprofit. I just knew it always would be serving other people because that's the Girl Scout law. That's what you do. Uh, And and my first board experience was actually being one of the first team board members of our local Girl Scout council here in Middle Tennessee. And so and I was a, a public speaker for the Girl Scouts. I mean, on up to a few years ago, I've spoken probably from 14 on up, um, doing all types of capital campaigns and introducing folks to the stage and doing uh, fundraising requests at 14, 15, 16, being at cocktail parties at 16 years old, probably, you know, not necessarily like a claim to fame, but being there as a girl, Girl Scout, being able to share the mission and explain why it's so critical. So I knew I would be serving and I knew that was my calling was to inspire people to also serve because it's the highest calling and responsibility we have is to make sure that humanity is well. And so that has been the thread of all of my work is to make sure that humanity is well, all of humanity. Nice. And we have so many like serious questions and we're going to get in depth and a lot of interesting things. But before we get started, I just have to know then what is your favorite Girl Scout cookie? I'm just curious. Oh, listen, I mean, Thin Mint needs to stay in your refrigerator or freezer 
24-7, right? And and I believe, of course, regionally, um, Girl Scout cookies are different because we have different bakers, right? But the Thin Mint is like, I feel like it's universal. It's I a classic. Yeah, everybody knows it, right? And so that's the one that it la- it doesn't last very long, but it can last you know, upwards of a year or so in your freezer if you keep it there. <laughs> not in my freezer, not in my refrigerator. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. My daughter and I have to like hide mm-hmm. a box so my husband doesn't find them or else they're gone like that. So yeah, oh, we always, you know, we always- leave of cookies is a single serving, right? Uh, hey, hey, I'm okay with that. Let's agree to that. <laughs> <laughs> that works for I me. Just, my kryptonite, my Girl Scout cookie kryptonite is um, the Tagalogs, the peanut butter oh, chocolate. Yeah, peanut butter, mm-hmm. Yep. That's good. That's good. All the time. Yes. I but, love it. So anyway, just, just had to share. And, you know, if anybody thinks that Thin Mints and Tagalogs are terrible, just come at me on our social media because cause that's, that's that's my line in the sand. That's yep. my deal. Yep. Yep. So getting back to the wonderful, important work that you do, um, on your website, it says that you work at the intersections of community, culture, crisis, and communication guiding leaders, organizations, and systems on um, a pathway of improvement. So that's a direct quote there. Can you talk us through how all those things best come together to create a better community? Yeah. So when you talk about community, we have to think about what the core elements of a community are. It is the ability to communicate with each other. It is the ability to have conflict with each other in a way that um, because conflict is actually not necessarily a negative. We have turned it into a negative, but it really is the way in which change happens. There has to be some type of um, dissension in some way so that we can have different differing perspectives. Um, and then you think about culture. So I'm always mindful of the cultural experiences that people have. Those are learned or lived experiences. That is the variety of backgrounds they come in. So how do I use all that to make sure that I'm mindful? I'm always filtering processes, strategic plans, um, philanthropic work through those lenses. You know, what's the conflict here, right? The conflict is, as an example, um, with Black philanthropy, which is a lot of the work that I do, that um, Black individuals are not givers, that we're only recipients. And so that's a conflict for me because I know the data reflects $11 billion of annual giving at three-fourths of households, right? So I want so now we got to communicate why culturally we believe that to be true, right? And that's how we get deeper into understanding white supremacy culture or understanding um, biases or understanding how a prejudice we could be. That's how we get deeper. And so I just my job is just really to bring all that to the surface and then begin figuring out how do we want to address it. Right. So how do we want to communicate about the conflict that's happening using those cultural tools that we have? So I know that that's all the jargony words that we can have. But what ultimately for me is what I mentioned before, how to be better humans with each other. How do we have uh, experience with each other that though we are very different and that is beautiful. And that's the reason why it's we're, we are the society that we are is because we're different. How do we then come together to have conversation around those differences, valuing each person at their very different point? That to me is the most important part of all the work that I do. Well said, well said. And I love the idea that, I mean, it's true. It's, I'm just having a dumb moment for anyone who is not watching the, our YouTube videos. I'm going, oh, um, <laughs> like Scooby-Doo or something. But reframing conflict, it is necessary. 
I mean, it is how things change and, and conflict doesn't mean that something's wrong. It means maybe something's getting ready to be better or right, depending on how you want it to think of that. So absolutely. I mean, we 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 cannot survive in a homogenous world, right? It it would it seems like it would be great that we're all thinking the same way. However, at what point do we figure out um, a different perspective? So as an example, when we think about boards, I uh, work a lot with nonprofit boards. I often tell the board, make sure you have an odd number, right? We want 11, we want 13, we want seven. Why? Because we need there to be someone to break the, the potential tie. And so that is just a quick example of how we make sure that um, that conflict is always uh, available to us or that different perspective is always available to us. It's my superpower, being able to bring perspectives into a room that people are not thinking about. Again, based on a lot of experiences, really that are cultural, right? That my background, whether it be like my lived or my learned experience, I bring that into every room. And sometimes it's in conflict and sometimes it's in care or sometimes it's in you know conversation, all the C's. Sometimes it's in all those. <laughs> well, and I, I don't even know if conflict's the right word, but like the older I get, the more I realize I need to be around people who have conflicting opinions and, and beliefs and ideas and all the things that I do, because it doesn't mean I always agree with everything, but I found myself reshaping some of the things that I've long held true because I've not lived those experiences. And so even though I'm like, I didn't think that way, but okay, that kind mm -hmm. of, that I need to rethink how I think that because of you've got more firsthand experience or you've got that. So, um, it's true. I love bringing together that idea of conflict is not a bad thing because uh -huh. it really, it's just, it's differences, right? Uh -huh. It doesn't have to uh -huh. be a bad thing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, reframing and, and you all re remember this, the two of you from the GPA conference, but one of the things I bring into uh, a lot of my work is guiding questions. So I used to be a heavy solutionist, right? Organizations could contact me and I could solve the problem. And I know many folks like that, particularly leaning into kind of gender, many women who are like that, right? Very smart about finding problems, going in and solving. The issue or the challenge with that is that if I don't give you all the parameters, you don't know how to solve for X when I leave and I've only given you Y and Z, right? So I had to begin the process of giving people guiding questions. And so a guiding question I'm always bringing forward is, am I willing to learn something new or am I willing to know that what I've learned isn't true, right? Those kind of questions around how we foundationally learn information, are we willing to have a different perspective? So in my initial session that most people book me for, that implicit bias and identity, I'm talking about how identity is shaped, usually from your caregiver. And then are you willing to have a different perspective than your caregiver, whoever raised you or whatever your community background was, because they did the best they could with the circumstances that they have, minus racist, homophobic, bigoted, right? But I'm saying if they were just giving you the best that they could, we accept that, we honor that, we appreciate that, and we live in a different society with a different set of rules, with different technology and innovations, and we can adapt to that as well, which is who we are as people, very adaptable. And so that guiding question keeps me centered in making sure that I'm asking myself the question versus trying to solve a problem every time. I'm just asking questions 
and then interrogating for myself and of course the projects or the programs that I'm working on too. Very true. I like that self help teaching people how to solve their own problems versus coming in with the solutions is that can be hard to do though, because if you're like me, I want to fix things. We are fixers by nature, by design, Mm -hmm. great. And also when we leave, because ultimately the goal has to be um, sustainability. And if I'm only the one in the room doing the work with you, that's not sustainable. So I want to make sure that I leave you in a sustainable space so I get a chance to walk away and you get a chance to keep asking yourself the really hard questions. Uh, And of course, if you need me, uh, it's like um, Nanny McPhee. I don't know if you all have seen that movie. And she's like, when you need me, you know, when you want me, I'll be there. But when you need me out, you know, and you have all the tools, I'll be gone. Right. And so it's kind of that type of thing. I don't know the exact quote, but I'm sure it'll end up in the show notes. But you get the point. It's like if you just want me to be around. I'm probably not going to be there because I've given you the tools. But if you absolutely need me, you don't have what you need. I will appear, you know, very magically, very Mary Poppins in your life. (laughs) Nice. Um, Well, I've got another question for you. So we've we've already talked about before that we have heard you speak several times regarding DEI topics. Um, And even though these are conversations that have been happening across the country through, you know, different boardrooms, different events, for years now, it can seem like we're still just talking about the same thing over and over again. So it's important to continue to have these conversations, but how do we get unstuck from just talking about it into some sort of action? Mm-hmm. So. I recently was at a um, an Aspen Institute conference and heard a gentleman um, speak And what he said was so simple and yet so profound. And I've used it so many times since I've heard it. And he's talking about short bridges and long bridges. And this idea that sometimes when we come into this conversation around diversity, equity, inclusion, or whatever, you know, accessibility, justice, whatever like acronyms or or letters you're using, we want to take over the whole world. So we are, we set these big ambitious missions Um, We align our values. We do a lot of things, sometimes performative, which performance is not necessarily bad. It's just it has to be coupled with something. But sometimes we're just performing it and then sometimes we're ready to act it out. Um, And so when he mentioned the short bridge and the long bridge, it just resonated with me because what I'm encouraging people to do when they're thinking about their goals is to really start to create shorter bridges, which helps us to say, you know, I want to take over the whole world and, and make the world better. And also, I can't necessarily do that. So I'm going to join this particular board and I'm going to join a particular committee. And the first year we're going to set out to have a DEI agenda, as an example. That's my short bridge. And then the following year, we're going to recruit more individuals to the board um, who is is a part of the diverse community that we are a part of and that we represent or that we want to be representative. Right. And so then so those are short bridges. What I found about human development is the brain needs celebration, right? And so I need to celebrate that I've gotten over the short bridge. If I always do the long bridge, I never get to celebrate and the body feels disappointed and anxious and guilty and shame and those other emotions that we're seeing constantly over and over again. And we've been seeing them since the 1960s when we saw that Civil Rights Act come forward, right? We've been having these same conversations for a very long time. The data reflects it, the white papers reflect it. And so what happens is because people are trying to save everyone, how do you work on your block? 
in your your HOA, right? Or your board or your fundraising plan. How do you do one thing that could be really instrumental in seeing success? So that's one way in which I've said let's we can get unstuck by doing that, getting giving ourselves a short bridge. Um, and, and and that's what I found that people are not willing to do. The other thing I would say is that there are some successes happening. We're often um, comfortable living in kind of the complaint, the complaining era, right? Social media is known for it, right? The venting space. So everything is horrible, but realistically, there are some things that have gone well. And so just like you're creating short bridges, I also need you to take time to celebrate and have joy around what we've accomplished. Even if it's creating a list of names of potential funders who are, who are not major funders in our city, but who are ambitious or excited about the mission, right? So like that's, let's celebrate, you know? And that celebration could be going to get a scoop of ice cream. I mean, it doesn't have to be some, you know, very large thing. It could be sometimes when I'm on screen, I don't have it with me, but I have little pom-poms that I've kept by my desk to celebrate with folks, right? You just need something that supports your brain's ability to know you you are rewarding yourself for doing well, right? And then that's how you move forward. So those are some of the ways in which um, I have seen uh, uh, groups get unstuck. I believe it's also about believing people when they say that harm is happening. Because often we are looking to validate um, all types of things. We're looking to validate data. Right. So when I bring forth historical facts or data, there's always this question of me as a black woman about what's the source of that and where did you get that from and who conducted the um, the research and what's the methodology? What school did you go to? I've been asked so many questions and I'm saying, but here's the book. Right. Here's the data. Here's the source. Or hello, here's Google. You can also do your own research, too. So believing people when they bring forward information um, and, and then being able to uh, adjust or adapt based on what they're bringing to you, right? They're bringing information to you. What are you going to do about it? I, I think about uh, a colleague of mine talks about this curb cut uh, effect. And the curb cut was that ADA, that uh, American Disabilities Act, where the there had to be a cut in the curb for individuals who were, uh, had, were experiencing some disability. But who gets the benefit from the curb cut? everybody. The mother with the stroller or the family with the stroller, the um, person willing their groceries down the street and they need to be able to get up and on and off the sidewalk. There are so many people who get access to that curb cut. And it was specifically for a particular community. And also we all benefit. And so believing people is the curb cut effect. It's saying we need to make sure the most vulnerable in our community get access to what they need. We believe that. And we're going to make sure that we do that. And then everyone gets the benefit, right? That's what believing people really can do. Again, that's another short bridge. Like believing someone is not difficult. We believe people all the time. Um, we believe all types of things. You can turn the news on and you believe exactly what the newscaster tells you without question. And so why is it when someone else comes, whether it's a young black child who tells you they've been harmed, whether it's a you know black male who tells you that they've been harmed, why do we not believe that? And so it's important that we check ourselves. And that's where those guiding questions come in, right? Am I willing to learn something new? So am I willing to learn something new in this situation? Am I willing to believe people at face value where they are? Absolutely. Until you prove otherwise, I believe you.
So those are just some of the ways we can get unstuck. <laughs> a lot to unpack <laughs> right there. There's a, yeah, there's a tawdry of ways, but those are a couple of things. Short bridges, which also leads us to how we believe people so we can get to the bridge. We can't even get to the bridge sometimes because we're just not in believability with people. We don't believe their stories. We don't believe their truth, their honor. Or for a lot of people, they don't even understand that it's a problem because they're not, they don't see themselves affected by that problem. I'm sure. speaking specifically about being in room with where all white people are board members. And it's like, well, why do we need to even keep talking about this? This is not a problem. Everyone knows that I'm not a racist. I've had people say that. And why do we have to even say? And and it's that sort of if you're not if you're not even aware that that's going on, that's where those guided questions can come in. Or even looking at the data, mm-hmm. um, I've going into and talking to colleagues who maybe are not even seeing that issue. I'm 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 like bringing I'm like well let's start in 1619 or let's go here or redlining. Let's talk about that. And it's even those conversations with family members. So it's, um, I think I'll just reframe, I'll reframe it. I think as a white person talking to other white people, it's like, yeah, I need to bring the data and talk about it because just simply asking people to be better humans sometimes is the thing that should happen and should work. Sometimes you have to go here, here are these things. Here are these studies. Here are these health outcomes. So, yeah. yeah, I mean, again, it goes back to believability because even with data based on who's presenting it. Right. So I constantly am encouraging people to read um, and explore black and indigenous writers and authors and speakers, as well as women, because those are often individuals who don't have access to come to market. Right. White men usually have the wealth and also the the. Uh, fastidiousness, if you will, to get to market. They can take their things to be on the bookshelves before anyone else. Um, and so reading those things, but you have to believe. So so this is why I do the internal interrogation first, because it's hard to understand um, systemic work if you don't understand your own internal struggle and how um, transference has happened. Right. And so when we're talking about if you have a great, great grandparent who was going to lynchings on Sundays and dressing up in their Sunday best, that transfers to you. One, the data reflects that. Right. If you, if you study epigenetics, you understand that. And in the particular study that I reference, it's often around Holocaust survivors, children and how they have a high propensity for stress because they they may be murdered. They may be starved. I mean, just atrocious things. So what do you think um, descendants of indigenous communities experience or uh, descendants of uh, enslavement? What do you think is happening to the genetic code? But what is also happening to white individuals whose family were a part of running down and lynching people? And so I'm not saying everyone is responsible for that. What I am saying, particularly if you live anywhere in the U.S., but particularly in the South, you got to interrogate that for yourself and have a process. What we're unwilling to do usually is have a ritual around forgiveness and grace. That's the reason why we don't want to address this. These are hard topics. 
when you're thinking about your background, because this, these people raised you, right? This is your family. They raised you. Um, and so you feel like I should honor who they are. We're, I'm not asking you to dishonor who they are. What I'm asking you is, can you also honor that what they did was atrocious? Can you honor? Two truths can exist. We live in America. Like this, we don't have to just have one way. And so I, I'm I'm constantly there with people trying to get them to interrogate their own understanding of self. And if you study things like um, meaning making, so how we make meaning of the world, most of us are not as clear about how the world comes to be. So then, of course, it's hard to understand that um, if water is bad in your community, it's also impacting lots of other people who are marginalized and, and vulnerable in 10 times more way. It's hard for you to understand that if you don't understand how the world has come to be, and particularly the world that we live in, which is the United States. So I start really with kind of individual interrogation. And if you and if you think about cultural humility, that's the first place you start is am I willing to self-critique? Am I willing to am I willing to be wrong? I'm willing to be wrong, you know, and I don't like it, but I have to train myself to know that I, I can't be right all the time. I mean, yes, we're three geniuses on the phone. But we're not always right, right? Like it's, we're three great people. We just can't always be right. It's just not even realistic. So when am, am I willing to be wrong? And am I willing to, of course, also be in community with people who allow me to be wrong, tell me that I'm wrong, and then be graceful with me as I come out of being wrong, right? That's what you need. Um, particularly all communities, and I create those safe spaces for black and brown folks, but white folks need that safe space too, to get it really wrong and not get it wrong with me because that's harmful, but get it wrong in your own space and have those, what I call ignorant conversations with each other and say stuff that you wouldn't say in public so that you can be told not appropriate. And here's what's better, right? And here's how we strengthen our community. But you need those safe spaces to do that in um, with each other. I strongly uh, recognize that that has to happen. And really, and, and and so when we get back to the question about how do we get unstuck, that's one way. Get really uncomfortable with, get really you know uncomfortable with sitting with folks who are your people and just saying like, that's just not right to say that. Or can I give you a different perspective? Or are you willing to hear, you know, a different lens on this? And of course, if they're your people, if they're really your community, they will be open. And they will say, yeah, this hurts, but absolutely, I want to learn. Yeah. So sort of shifting um, into maybe something a little more specific. I know we've been talking about all kinds of things that I think are so important to talk about. Yeah. Um, but I also would love to hear um, specifically more around the, the Black Philanthropy Initiative, Yes, how that works, and to offer listeners who, are, who might be like, I'm a grant writer. This is all really abstract and scary. And I got too many deadlines, but, but offering, here's some concrete, here's some shorter bridges I'm imagining that you might have uh, built with, with the Black Philanthropy Initiative. So I would just love to hear more about it. 
Yeah. So speaking to the data piece, uh, if you go to my website, kiajarman.com, there's a link called Black Philanthropy. There's a report there um, at the very top. The Kellogg Foundation did a report around um, the color of giving, and it specifically highlights some data around Black giving. Um, So that's one, first and foremost. So for those grant writers who are thinking about uh, how do I create a fundraising plan towards the Black community? There's good data there for you to do that. The um, one, since being a little girl, as I told you, I'm a Girl Scout, so I've always been a philanthropist, and I highly want um, Black folks to understand that you own that word just like every other community. You don't have to have name on the side of a building um, or, or some large check donation to be a philanthropist. So in 2019, uh, we celebrated the uh, during August uh, Black Philanthropy Month. Uh, and so that was our first kind of foray here with the Community Foundation of Middle Tennessee. A colleague in my uh, of mine and I came together and said, we want to do more to really invest in uh, amplifying the stories of Black philanthropy and what that means. And so we celebrate the five T's, time, talent, uh, treasure, truth, and testimony in philanthropy and really highlight those folks locally, but also nationally who are doing excellent work. Uh, sharing their voice, sharing uh, the truth, the joy, the love that we have for each other in the Black community and how we've given and how we've always given. This is not new, how we've always given and really trying to push back against um, the narrative that Black people only are recipients. Because if you look at your data, very much so you're going to see a reflection of uh, maybe a higher reflection of Black people that are receiving that doesn't necessarily mean that they're also not able to give. And so it's really important. So we're really pushing that through a three-part mission. One is amplifying those funds at the Community Foundation in Middle Tennessee. So we do that through Give Black, Give Back. Um, We also uh, support local nonprofits who are particularly Black-led, whether that's their um, executive director or their board chair. Uh, And then we also work to educate towards the racial wealth gap, that 200 and year racial wealth gap between black and white individuals that happens because of systemic harm not necessarily one individual person has done anything but we're all con- we're all contributing right. by not being aware and we're benefiting by not being aware so we spend a lot of time storytelling through give black give back um, and and you know it's really been exciting to see people use philanthropy in their title or uh, on their LinkedIn or on social media because now they know that it's an inheritance that they receive from their ancestors. It's not just something that you have again because of how much is in your bank, but it really is about your love and 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 the action you take in your community to make it better. So we define. Philanthropy is supporting people out of their condition, where charity is supporting people in their condition. While we need while we need both of those things to happen, we really focus on how do we help people not continue to need the food bank, as an example. That's great, right? You need it real time. And then also, how do we support you in building a sustainable change in your family dynamic so you don't have to keep using that? And what we found culturally is that if we get people out of their condition, they come back and become philanthropists and support other people. So it's a beautiful circle that um, that we create through Black philanthropy. And thank you for asking, because I'm really passionate about that work and excited about sharing that news with so many people. Well, it really shows and it's really important work. So I'm. it's great that you're passionate about it. It makes all the it sense is. in the world. 
Yeah. Thank and you. I also, I just think for so many people, for people who may think and process like me, concrete examples of what, what can happen um, are just super helpful. Yeah. I mean, at the very least, so in your community, if you're thinking about how can I amplify Black philanthropy, uh, documenting stories is a really great way because we know how history works, right? Many times it is passed orally. And so how do we document the stories of those originators of your community who are doing absolutely wonderful work? And then, of course, telling the stories of those who are new innovators to the community and documenting that in your libraries, on your websites. Um, many uh, of the folks listening who are working in you know, donor services or development in some way, you get stories all the time. Find a couple of really great ones and then talk about those and document those for the world to see. Nice. Thanks. Well, we talked previously, we kind of touched on this a little bit with this, the short bridges and the long bridges and doing yeah. those small steps. But I've heard you say on more than one occasion about like, we can do hard things, but being a good human is not a hard thing. So could you elaborate on that? <laughs> yes. I love that. Yeah. I mean, waking up every day and wanting to make sure that humans have access to the full joy of living and being amazing shouldn't be difficult. Done hard things like, I mean, we just went through and and we're on a rise with COVID again, based on the numbers I'm seeing. We just went through two and a half, three years of being totally locked down in the house, couldn't see family, and then also had many passings. That's really hard, right? I had two uncles who were brothers in two different cities pass away one day after each other, right? That's hard on a family. Um, but waking up in the morning and deciding I'm going to make sure that I don't impede someone's ability to have joy and to experience the fullness of life, that is not difficult. Um, waking up in you know to a passing of a loved one, a parent, a child, that is hard. Laying off staff during the height of a recession, that is very difficult. And so I, I this is why I say perspective is my superpower, because my perspective is... I, if I don't myself have joy, that's whatever. But what I also can't do is impede on someone else's ability. And so that's what I mean. With, it's not that difficult to be a good human because if you yourself are miserable, that's fine. Stay in your miserable home. What I'm saying is don't come out into the world and make other people's life miserable. When life is already really challenging, we already have so many things that could be impacting us. And just making sure that someone else is well should not be a difficult thing to do. We have um, been rewarded for making people's lives miserable. And that is why we are, we're incentivized to keep doing that in lots of ways, whether it's social media likes, you know, viral videos, the news media, we've been incentivized. And I'm asking people to remove that. Um, that that kind of fake sincerity and really move into, you know, I, I may not myself be all the way where I want to be, but I certainly cannot hurt someone else in the meantime. Um, because again, hard stuff is happening. I just watched a video of a woman experiencing Alzheimer's and that runs deeply in my family who did not even recognize herself in the mirror. That is really, really, really hard. Um, being a person, when you look in the mirror and you recognize yourself, that is not that difficult. And if you see yourself, that means you also see other hu humans. And that's the humanity that I'm asking people to think about is, can you see a reflection of yourself and all these other amazing folks that are around you? That's a beautiful way to 
I'm just gonna let that soak. Yes. I'm just soaking <laughs> that in. I'm yeah. making notes and soaking. Thank you so much. Thank you My so pleasure. much. Yeah. Um, if if you, if folks are interested either in finding out more about what you're doing or your trainings, and I would also say um, if you are a grant professional and you're like, well, what does this have to do to my work? Um, maybe that's a good place to start is maybe asking about that and um, talking about that. And, um, if and you reading are, your book list. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. So for folks who want to learn more and folks who might need to learn more and you know who you are, um, how do they find you? What's the best way? Yeah, very simply, you can go to my website, kiajarman.com, K-I-A-J-A-R-M-O-N.com. There are some great resources there. There is a book list there. Um, it's connected to an Amazon. I get a penny or something if you click. This is not about selling. This is just easy way for me to share. I encourage you to go to your local Black bookstore, okay? Um, and then also, I'm on all the social platforms as Kia Jarman and would love to connect. Um, and as we're connecting, hope that we can be you know, good humans to each other. Nice. Thank you so much. And a quick plug right after that. If you are a white person going, well, I don't know what to do. I don't know. I would say, why don't you go and download the book list? Generally, people who listen to our podcast are readers. And if you're like, I, I don't know, I would say, um, you know, educate yourself and don't go to um, a black person or another person of color and ask them to figure it out for you. There's all sorts of things, and we've got a setup where you can go, or Kia has the setup, we're just talking about it, where Kia has the setup where you can go and educate yourself. And so why not do that? Thank you for that, Kimberly. I appreciate that a little yeah. bit. Well, thanks for joining our show. I always love talking with you and listening to you because it's, like you said, it's a, it's a big thing. It, but you it, sometimes when people talk about it, it just seems so big and a behemoth of a thing. It's like, what what role do I even play in this and how do I even, but you give me hope and, and, and advice for like, these are the steps. These are the things that if we all can do just these little things, those, it builds up to something big. So thank you for giving me joy in that regard. Yes. My thank pleasure. You. Thank you for having me. Oh, thank you. Thank you. And, um, we just look forward to hearing more great things about the black philanthropy initiative and hope that it spreads to Georgia and beyond. We are so glad that you chose to listen to the Fundraising Heyday podcast. It means a lot. The emails, the calls, the um, just everything around it, the likes and subscribes, it just keeps us going and it, and it gives us that good feeling that we're doing something that we love that also reaches out in the community. Um, so thanks, whether today is your first uh, experience with the Fundraising podcast, um, or you've been with Fundraising Heyday since the very beginning. Um, and if you can't get enough of the Heyday stuff, right, visit our website at um, HeydayServices, H-A-Y-D-A-Y Services.com and sign up for our newsletter, The Heyday Hot Takes. It's weekly and you can find out um, useful information and cool book recs and all sorts of things. So hope to see you there and it'll come in your inbox weekly on Friday mornings. Heyday Services. Give it a go. Thank you again to our Season 6 sponsor, D.H. Leonard Consulting and Grant Writing Services. We appreciate their support in making grants less stressful. Visit their website, 
dhleonardconsulting.com to download their latest resources today. We're so honored you chose to spend time with us today. Be sure to join us again in two weeks. We are talking about funder websites or the lack thereof and um, shocking, but we have thoughts and feelings. So <laughs> come join the rant. <laughs> Woo, see ya. <laughs> <laughs>